Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. My guest this week is Neil Faulkner, editor of Military History Matters magazine, who I've invited on to discuss his article in our latest issue, which is out this week in the UK and next month in the US. Our cover feature of this issue focuses on the Japanese attack on the American base at Pearl Harbor, the 80th anniversary of which falls this December. You can also read the feature in full on the past website now. Neil's article focuses on a slightly less well-known but still significant event in Egypt in 1882, the Battle of Tel el-Kabir, during which British forces crushed an Arab nationalist movement in the region, had, as Neil argues, significant consequences for the region and the world in the following four decades and beyond. The wider war of which this battle was part is the focus of Neil's new book, Empire and Jihad, The Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870-1920, published by Yale University Press. You can get a hold of a copy via the link in this episode's description. But before you do that, here's my conversation with Neil Faulkner. Neil, thanks very much for joining me. Um, I've got you here today to talk about your article, which focuses on the Battle of Tel El-Kabir in 1882, which was between the British and the Arab nationalist forces. Um, could you tell me a bit, to begin with, about the context of the battle and why it came about? Well, the, the battle is hugely uh, significant because um, what has happened here is that there is uh, what is effectively an Egyptian uh, nationalist revolution, which has broken out really in response to the fact that Egypt has been placed um, under the control of an Anglo-French uh, administration who are uh, supervising the government of the Khedive of Egypt, who's become effectively a puppet. And that supervision is designed to ensure a continuing flow of interest payments to Anglo-French bankers because Egypt had become very heavily indebted. And the reality of that is that it's a flow of income from the Egyptian peasantry, uh, who are being very, very heavily uh, taxed in order to enrich very already very wealthy people in London and Paris. And this is really the trigger. This kind of neo-colonial set, setup is really the trigger for the Arab nationalist revolution. And what the liberal government in Britain decides to do um, is to authorise a full-scale military uh, intervention, a full-scale invasion, uh, in fact, to smash the revolution and to restore the uh, the puppet regime of the uh, Khedive. In other words, to shore up the existing uh, neo-colonial uh, setup. And it's a confrontation between what was at the time um, a developing state um, with a relatively primitive um, infrastructure, limited arms industry, um, and so on, a relatively, relatively backward um, army, and a completely state-of-the-art, uh, modern, um, heavily industrialised military expedition with its uh, ironclad ships bombarding Alexandria, and then a full-scale uh, land invasion that comes in through the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, reaching its culmination at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir, uh, where the Egyptians make a stand in a heavily um, entrenched position in an attempt to block uh, the road from the Suez Canal uh, to the Egyptian capital um, at Cairo. And the Egyptian trenches are uh, stormed by Sir Garnet Woolsey's um, army, um, 
early um, on the uh, day of the battle, there's a kind of flurry of pretty ferocious fighting, which lasts for an hour or so, but it doesn't last very long. And the um, outgunned um, Egyptian forces are overwhelmed and effectively the Egyptian resistance collapses um, in an early morning um, of battle. There is There are no further major military encounters and the British are able to march into Cairo and to restore the uh, Khedive. So it's a Victorian small war, uh, which is over and done with very, very quickly. Would I be right in thinking that at least initially, the very beginning of the battle, the uh, resistance was stronger than the British expected? Although, you know, as you said, very easily, it was sort of ultimately crushed by this well-oiled machine. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that the uh, the expectation was that the Egyptian uh, soldiers uh, would collapse at the first onset um, of these highly professional, highly trained, superbly well-equipped uh, British regulars. Um, I mean, the Egyptian soldiers were essentially, um, you know, peasant conscripts um, with, by the standards of the time, second-rate weapons. The expectation, I think, was that they would collapse more quickly. In fact, they fought quite hard, but briefly um, in the trenches. So the British casualties were somewhat higher than I think uh, Wolseley had anticipated. And that resistance, I think, probably a reflection of the degree to which there was a very powerful uh, popular movement in support of the nationalist regime, headed by Colonel Arabi Pasha, um, who was a little bit similar, I think, to a later figure in Egyptian history, uh, Colonel uh, Nasser, who, of course, was the Egyptian leader in the 1950s. And he, too, was very much um, an icon of not just Egyptian nationalism, actually, but Arab nationalism. And I see um, Arabi Pasha as a kind of precursor um, of that. And uh, th- there's no doubt, really, that this was a a mass popular movement and no doubt that that, that, that was um, affecting the morale um, and the determination with which the Egyptian soldiers defended their trenches. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think Nasser is probably quite well remembered and regarded in Egypt today. I've never been there, so I couldn't say for sure. But um, is Pasha, does Pasha on this uh, Tel al-Kabir, is that held to the same sort of esteem as as famous a moment in Egyptian history, a sort of valiant struggle that was ultimately unsuccessful? Yeah, I think certainly. um, I mean, if, if, if... Any Egyptian historian uh, would certainly regard um, the Arabi Pasha regime as a regime which should have been supported, and the Battle of Tel El Kabir as um, as a um, as a defeat for Egypt, because Arabi represented. I mean, what he wanted to do essentially, rather the same as Nasser, he wanted to modernize Egypt. He wanted to reform Egypt. He wanted to make Egypt an independent state. He wanted to establish a kind of liberal uh, constitutional government. Ironically, he represented the same sort of politics as William Ewart Gladstone, the liberal prime minister in Britain, at least on paper, represented the same kind of political um, ideas. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt at all that um, you know any kind of impartial 
historiography, not just Egyptian historiography, actually, but any kind of impartial historical account would have to recognize uh, the legitimacy of the Egyptian national struggle that was being fought in 1882 and, and, and see the British aggression um, for what it was. I mean, a, a naked um, imperialist um, attack um, on uh, another country uh, in the interests of Anglo, Anglo-French Anglo banks. Perhaps we can bring it out now to your book in general, um, which is called, uh, from which the article is taken, it focuses on the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870 to 1920. Um, could you summarise for me what these, war was, what these wars were and how significant this battle was in the, sort of the conflict as a whole? Well, I think Tel El Kabir was particularly important because what it did effectively was it shut down um, one possible um, uh, historical trajectory that might have been uh, followed because Araby um, offered a kind of liberal, modernising, uh, reformist way forward, a modern kind of nationalism if you like. And I think by shutting that down, what the British did was that they opened the space for a different kind of um, resistance, uh, but one that was not based on something that was forward-looking and progressive, but one one based on uh, looking back to an imagined uh, medieval uh, past. And what the book is really about is the conflict between the Arab slave trade, the East African slave trade, which reaches a peak in the 19th century. And that happens because of the way in which the whole global economy is booming and there's soaring demand for primary uh, commodities, which means a soaring demand for the commodities which are being produced and transported by slave labour. Um, in East Africa. Uh, it's a conflict between that slave trade, which is then defended by people who are essentially uh, Islamists, uh, jihadists, who are arguing for a, an Islamic holy war against the Europeans, against the uh, colonialists. That on one side. And then on the other, you have a series of um, British uh, military interventions, or initially uh, interventions by British officers working for the Turco-Egyptian administration in Cairo, and then subsequently its full-scale British military expeditions to try and deal with this outbreak of um, jihadism, which has been triggered by the attempt to eradicate um, the slave trade and for which a space has been created, really, by the shutting off of um, a more liberal, uh, nationalist, uh, secular political alternative um, for the region. It sent, that conflict centres very much on the conflict in the Sudan, uh, the conflict which is led by the, uh, the Mahdi, uh, which involves essentially two main phases to the conflict. Um, initially a conflict uh, where General Gordon is sent down the uh, Nile 
to defend Khartoum and try and organise an evacuation, becomes trapped there, and that triggers a British uh, military expedition going down the Nile. Again, it's led by Garnet Woolsey to try and rescue him. Those events playing out in 1884 and 1885. And then a second phase to the conflict, which really gets underway in 1896 and culminates in the Battle of Omdurman in 1898, when General Kitchener is sent down the Nile to reconquer the Sudan, the British having lost control of it between 1885 and um, 1896. And so it's, you know, the two phases to the conflict over the um, Sudan and a period um, between those two conflicts when the Sudan is an Islamic uh, caliphate uh, run by a regime of, I would say, uh, religious uh, bigots and uh, slave traders and militarists, a very uh, reactionary uh, regime. But what I would also say um, about this conflict is that it's essentially dystopian um, because the British don't represent a progressive alternative in the interests of the ordinary people of the region either. They represent coolie capitalism. They represent bankers capitalism. They represent uh, a European imperialism which is intervening in the region and indeed at the time carving up the whole of Africa in order to exploit um, its people and its resources. So the conflict that the book is describing is is a dystopian conflict playing out over a period of um, about 50 uh, years. And in the latter part of it, um, I should say, the focus shifts to Somaliland, where there is also a jihadist insurgency, um, which plays out between 1900 and 1920, which is why I take the book right up until um, 1920. But this whole dystopian conflict um, playing out in a way which offers really nothing positive to the people of the region at the time. Yeah, I noticed in the introduction you said it's a dystopian tale, which I quite liked that. Um, I wanted to ask you first, um, you know, why you felt the need to write this book? I mean, do you think the period has been covered fairly by historians up until this point? Well, I, I think there's a there's a huge literature about the conflict in the Sudan, um, and and that varies uh, hugely. I mean, some of it is good, uh, some of it less so. Some of it um, I disagree with quite strongly because it tends to present the British as essentially a, a progressive force um, in this. Uh, in this conflict, um, other parts of the 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 story that the book is concerned with are much uh, less well uh, covered. Um, what I try to do is to provide a broader uh, a broader context for that central conflict in the Sudan. I start actually with the with the um, the uh, African explorers, in particular David. Uh, Livingston, um, exploring Africa in the uh, 1850s and 1860s into the 1870s, becoming aware of the East African slave trade and the degree to which the slave trade is soaring and is really tearing the heart 
um, out of traditional African society. And the way in which Livingston in particular, but to some degree, the other explorers, um, becoming standard bearers for the abolitionist uh, cause and stirring up the Victorian public to put pressure on the government to intervene to deal with the um, to deal with the slave trade, and that uh, is the foundation block really for the story, the military story, essentially military story that then unfolds. So I'm putting. I'm putting the the story of the conflict in the Sudan into that wider context. And then I'm also carrying the story of jihadism uh, forwards uh, into the early part of the 20th century. So looking at the very long running uh, conflict in uh, Somaliland, but also talking about the First World War. Because you see, what is interesting is the way in which the British, having had this experience of um, the jihadist uh, insurrection in the Sudan. At the time of the First World War, they are obsessively worried that they might face some kind of jihadist type uh, revolt, an Islamist type revolt inside the British um, Empire. And that is exactly what the German Kaiser is trying to stir up in the course of the First World War. There's an interesting difference here between the central powers in the First World War, and that of course means um, Germany, uh, Austria, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, where you have a, a German imperialism, which doesn't rule over any Muslims at all, in alliance with um, the Ottoman Empire, which of course is ruled um, by Muslims, in conflict with the Entente powers, essentially the British, the French and the Russians, who all rule over very large numbers of Muslims. Uh, the Russians rule over 20 million Muslims in Central Asia. The French rule over 20 million Muslims, mainly in North and West Africa. And the British rule over about 100 million Muslims in the Indian subcontinent and Egypt. So the possibility is there of, uh, especially with the German alliance with the Ottoman Turks, and you know the Ottoman Turks, as soon as they come into the war, they, they announce that the war is, is in fact, um, it's a holy war. And they encourage uh, Muslims across the world to support the Ottoman Empire and its struggle against the primarily against the British in the Middle East. And there's real concern on the part of the British that they could face a, a massive flare up of anti-colonial revolt inside the British Empire uh, in the course of the First World War. And that's why they keep so many troops in Egypt. Uh, throughout the First World War. It's why they go on to the offensive in the Sinai Desert and eventually push up into Palestine in 1917 and 1918. They're determined to uh, remove this threat of jihadist revolt. It's also why they form an alliance with the Hash or one of the reasons why they form an alliance with the Hashemite Arabs of the Hejaz region of Western Arabia. This is the famous Arab revolt, uh, which brings T.E. Lawrence um, into the picture. And generally speaking, um, they are they have exaggerated uh, the threat because actually there isn't much in the way of jihadist 
uh, revolt during the First World War. Uh, there's a revolt in the Western Desert by the Senussi. Uh, there's a little bit of fighting in uh, Darfur uh, in Western uh, Sudan. But broadly speaking, the British get through the experience of the First World War without facing a major revolt um, inside their empire. I was just thinking if, you know, if the First World War hadn't actually happened and Britain still had its priorities faced in sort of uh, African nations, do you think this the colonial expansion would have just sort of expanded and got more attritional? Mm. I, I mean, I, I think I think in actual fact, the, uh, the, the, the First World War leads to a very significant expansion of the uh, British uh, Empire. So it's the other way about, uh, really. Uh, by the time of the First World War, um, much of the, certainly Africa, 90% of Africa, um, when the First World War broke out, was under European colonial control. And much of the rest of the world is also either under European colonial control or within European dominated spheres of influence. And it's it's partly actually that um, that, that tightening of uh, competition between different empires in the wider world that increases the tension that leads up to the outbreak of the First World War. It's almost as if the um, the uh, the exhaustion of the possibilities for imperial expansion in the wider world lead to an intensification of the conflict inside uh, Europe with um, an escalation in the arms race and then the explosion in July-August uh, 1914. So this is really a conflict to decide um, how is the world going to be redivided between these two uh, competing alliances of imperial powers. And the victory of the Entente powers means that the British uh, and the French both are able to very substantially increase uh, the size of their empires as a result of the various agreements that are made at the end of the First World War, the Versailles Peace, but a number of other agreements as well that follow on from the Versailles um, Peace. And the Middle East is perhaps the supreme example because the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which had dominated the whole region that we now call uh, the Middle East, all of the um, Arabic-speaking parts of the former Ottoman Empire are lost. The Ottoman Empire is reduced to um, Turkey and, and is transformed into the modern uh, republic, the modern nation-state um, of Turkey. But the loss of the Arabic-speaking provinces of the Ottoman Empire means that they become available to be divided up essentially between the British and the French, which is why the British end up in effective control of uh, Palestine, Jordan and Iraq after the First World War, the French in effective control of Lebanon and uh, Syria. So it's, it's victory in the First World War that means that the British Empire um, increases very substantially in size and is then saddled, I think, with a problem of overextension. And I think during the interwar period, and then even more obviously in the post-Second World War uh, period, we can see that playing out, where what is by then effectively a declining imperial uh, power, um, facing imperial overstretch, 
in, in increasingly uh, financially um, uh, overburdened as well as being militarily um, um, overstretched is facing a series of colonial revolts or the possibility of colonial revolts where they know they can't hold the line. So the British Empire is then unravelling in the course of the 1950s and the 1960s. Finally, I asked Neil if he had any other projects that he's working on at the moment. I, I am uh, working on, uh, on on a number of um, other books. The thing I should say that the thing that is most immediate um, is something um, very different, actually. Um, it's 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 going to be called um, Armies for Freedom: uh, The Selected Military Writings of Tom Wintringham. And for listeners who um, are unfamiliar with Tom Wintringham, um, he's a very interesting uh, figure from the middle of the uh, 20th century, um, who was the commander of the British Battalion of the International uh, Brigades uh, at the Battle of Harama in 1937 during the Spanish uh, Civil War. And then when he came back to uh, Britain, he became centrally involved, um, both as a journalist and as a military trainer in the development of the defence of Britain in, 18, uh, in 1940, 1941. Um, he set up, for example, the first Home Guard training school at Osterley Park in the summer of 19. Uh, 40 on the edge of uh, London. And he was a very prolific journalist and writer advocating uh, the transformation of the war into a proper uh, people's war with lots of emphasis on uh, the home guard, on home defence and on guerrilla warfare techniques, not just at home, but also he was advocating the building up of the uh, resistance uh, in occupied Europe and so on. So a very interesting figure in uh, British military history and in the development of military theory as well. Um, and all of his work, or pretty well all of his work, is out of print. Uh, so the idea is to produce um, a volume which will be an edited selection um, of his writings on military theory to be published by Pen and Sword in due course. Thanks, Neil. And don't forget that you can read his article in full in the latest issue of Military History Matters magazine, as well as online at the past website. And as I said before the interview, Neil's book is also available to buy now. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guest, Neil Faulkner, and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.